When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It is Wednesday, September 15th, joined by Darius Dale, the founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Darius, welcome. Hey, what's up, Jack? How you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. So, Darius, there's really one thing that I think we have to talk about, which is China. Uh, the horror show there really shows no sign of ending. I think it's facing a three-pronged attack, which I want to talk to you about. Number one, the real estate sector is facing a $300 billion default, which could send shockwaves throughout the economy. And number two, the economy, uh, given that or not, is itself slowing down with home prices down, retail sales rolling over, uh, not a lot of Great signals coming from that country. And then number three, the crackdowns show no sign of ending. They continue. Uh, you know, Macau, which you know, up until recently is thought of as something of a gambler's paradise with Wynn Resorts, Las Vegas Sands, very profitable companies there. Um, you know, uh, the Chinese, the CCP uh, put their uh, regulatory things on hold and the uh, Las Vegas Sands, the, Chine the Chinese version of that uh, is down 30 percent. Uh, uh, Las Vegas Sands in the U.S. is down something like 10%. So really a horror show, a horror show in China. Uh, Darius, how are you making sense of this? Yeah, I mean, look, China's an incredibly cyclical economy and an incredibly cyclical market. So, you know, we go from these wild swings of, you know, super accelerating growth and, you know, boom, domestic boom that filters through the rest of the global economy to these sort of, you know, long, elongated periods where policies tightening, growth slowing, the headlines are just persistently negative. And we're certainly... Uh, in one of those periods now. Um, you know, from a cyclical perspective, obviously last night, overnight, uh, we got the August hard high frequency data out of China. Retail sales slowed to 2.5%, industrial production slowed to 5.5%. Uh, those numbers are consistent with where they've been last summer, last summer, so like at one year lows. And then fixed asset investment, uh, property investment in particular, um, slowed to basically where they were in, in December. If you look at the, some of the leading indicators of the Chinese economy, things that we track, like the credit impulse, for instance, you know, that peaked back in November around 32%. Um, you know, it's all the way down around 24 and a half percent as of late. And so, you know, we saw this, we've seen this coming, we're continuing to observe it. Um, and really, there's really no end in sight uh, over the near term with respect to uh, the deceleration in the Chinese economic activity. Darius, I have a question. Normally, uh, China leads, as you say. So in 2007, when growth in China stalled and, uh, you know, that that was a warning signal because commodity prices, economic growth, what you see in China is typically what you're going to see in the rest of the world a few months or perhaps a year later. Uh, so how do you square, uh, you know, what do you think that this portends for, for the rest of the world? Is the slowdown in Chinese growth going to be a headwind for commodity prices, for asset markets, whether it's European equities or, you know, uh, American equities? And also, how do you square the fact that uh, oil and aluminum are just jumping off the charts despite this uh, sort of uh, crisis that we're seeing in China. Yeah, so look, I, I, the reason commodities, oil, aluminum, things like that are jumping off the charts 
has a lot more to do with supply demand imbalances um, in those particular markets. If you look at what's leading commodities higher, things like natural gas, uranium, those things, aluminum, those things all have you know interesting fundamental stories and fundamental setups that are actually you know catalyzing price appreciation there. But I'll take a step back. You know, you, I think there's a big misnomer you know across the investments you know community of sort of isolating on China to determine the commodity exposure and sort of the outlook for commodities. And don't get me wrong, China's been a huge uh, participant, both uh, in absolute terms and also in marginal growth terms in terms of consuming most commodities. So I think that's why a lot of investors anchor on it. But, you know, the reality is there's, you know, plenty of times in history um, where Chinese growth is decelerating for, you know, several quarters before the rest of the world uh, sort of recognizes that. I think of the most recent example um, was 2017. Chinese growth peaked in the first quarter of 2017 and it was slowing. Uh, pretty sharply throughout the, the year and, and obviously accelerated to the downside in 2018, 2019. But you didn't really see that impact global equities until you know the first quarter of 2018. And obviously, some of those impulses alongside uh, the quantitative tightening that we saw uh, really kind of hit U.S. equities in Q4 of 18 in particular. So it's not that you don't think that the ongoing Chinese slowdown and the severe reduction in economic activity and asset prices there isn't going to affect the rest of the world. You just think that there will be a significant delay, that it's not an immediate warning signal for, for the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. And part of the reason I believe that is, you know, we're currently in this sort of Goldilocks regime uh, from the perspective of our market regime now casting process. We expect Goldilocks-like market conditions to persist over the next couple of months, at least through the end of October, maybe even into the beginning part of November. Um, but beyond that, when the net liquidity dynamics that we've been talking about in recent weeks on this program, when those start to reverse and move in the other direction, that's when you would expect the headlines that are stemming out of China, the demand impulses that are coming out of that economy to really have a material negative impact on asset markets. But for now, I think, you know, the, 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 the Chinese growth curve is likely to continue lower. So by the time we get to those negative net liquidity dynamics later this year, it's actually going to be a much worse story uh, from probably higher prices in terms of risk assets. Darius, you talked about Goldilocks. That is an economic state of state of being where Inflation is slowing and growth is growing at the same time. That's typically a very fertile ground for risk assets, particularly stocks. Uh, what do you see as the major threats to, to this Goldilocks environment that we've been in? Yeah, so let's stick with China real quick and then I'll broaden that out. So, you know, again, I don't necessarily believe that China will have a material impact on shaking us out of Goldilocks in the near term. However, I do believe later this year when some of the policy dynamics in the U.S. catch up to some of the more fundamental dynamics in, in, in economies like China. But sticking with China, you know, there's five things that are really weighing on Chinese growth at the moment. One is the PBOC sort of hard-headed neutral monetary policy setting, which is obviously extremely sort of deliberate um, in terms of their uh, you know, stated objectives of a higher quality growth. Uh, number two, you have President Xi's Common Prosperity Initiative and all the associated regulatory tightening. Not only is that you know, outright weighing on growth in specific sectors, but it's actually curtailing you know, capital investment um, and elsewhere in the Chinese economy. Number three, you got uh, extended travel restrictions. You know, you got another COVID outbreak in southern provinces, so that's not helping either. Uh, number four, you've got you know what has been pretty you know an accelerating pace of macro prudential tightening in the Chinese real estate sector. And part of the reason for that is number five, which is you have this sort of whole Evergrande um, debacle. Um, you know, the looming debt default, which is likely to take place on on Monday. Um, you alluded to this, Jack. Evergrande has $300 billion U.S. In, in, in liabilities, and just under half of that is money owed to Chinese homeowners or would-be homeowners uh, who uh, made down payments for, you know, sort of unfinished property. So 
obviously Evergrande defaults, it's going to be a big deal. So it's really just about the pace and uh, the restructuring and, 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 and likely the, the likely path forward that the Chinese authorities are comfortable with. Because obviously they're not going to let this thing turn into a Lehman situation. There's no political will and there never will be a political will uh, among the Chinese Communist Party for that kind of outcome. I want to ask you about that, Darius. But before we do, let's put this chart up. You alluded to the default on Evergrande, which is expected to happen next Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, I say about to happen because even though that Evergrande debt, um, as as you can see on this chart, is trading at about 27 cents on the dollar, mm-hmm. um, that's in, in green, China Evergrande is technically not in default. Um, and as such, the, the uh, CEO of... Um, Evergrande can pay out essentially who he wants, uh, regardless of where they fall in the capital stack. But I want to bring up this chart because you can see that it's not just China Evergrande. There are other Chinese real estate giants. Um, Fantasia, which is a secured uh, bond denominated in dollars, uh, now trading at 48 cents on the dollar. By the way, that is rated uh, B plus by by Fitch, trading at uh, 48 cents on the dollar. Then you have Guangzhou RNF Properties, uh, an unsecured bond rated by the Lian He uh, credit rating agency, uh, Chinese, as a AAA. That now trading at, at $70. Uh, so let's move on to this next chart, um, which is essentially Chinese uh, uh, yield to worst of high yield credit versus the United States. Uh, I don't think this is a, um, exact apples to apples, just so you know, because it's, uh, I don't know, I think it's entirely China, but it's vast majority of China. So the spread on high yield Chinese debt is now at 13.4% almost as high as it was at the apex, at the worst of the pandemic. Talk about the tale of two cities. The United States, uh, high yield debt there is now yielding a meager 3.75%, not enough to keep up with current inflation. So it it really is uh, quite a stark scenario. And then lastly, let's move on to this chart, uh, which I love. It's your chart from 42 Macro. I believe in the red is the Chinese credit impulse. Darius, do you want to quickly explain what is the Chinese credit impulse and why it is such a good predictor of, of economic booms and slowdowns? Yeah, so the, the credit impulse is a is a is an impulse metric, it's a momentum metric, and it looks at the relationship between the net change, the net nominal change in incremental credit and credit creation relative to the trailing for average GDP. And so obviously if that change is going up, you know, there's a lot of credit creation and credit's growing faster than the economy. And it tends to precede economic accelerations and vice versa. You know, when the credit impulse is declining, it tends to precede um, economic decelerations. And so this chart is especially sort of helpful for investors to sort of quickly contextualize where we are with respect to Chinese leading indicators. And the reason I say that is because the blue line shows three months SHIBOR. SHIBOR is interbank lending rates in China. And so the reason that we show SHIBOR as a good proxy for Chinese monetary policy is because it, 80, 80 plus percent, roughly around 82, 83 percent of, of all fi- private non-financial sector credit in China on the mainland is on bank balance sheet. So that's a, that's a big deal. You know, that, that compares to an economy like the U.S. where, you know, we're talking about 45 to 47 percent. So it's a big deal in terms of tracking the, the, the pace of interbank rates or the direction rather of interbank lending rates in China, because it'll tell you a lot about the PBOC's monetary policy setting, which takes me to my initial point, which is, the fact that Shibor is not doing what it typically does when the Chinese credit impulse, you know, collapses like it has in in recent quarters, is is very indicative of a very neutral monetary policy setting. They're not moving up. Uh, they're not extending medium-term lending. They're just merely rolling over existing balances. They're not doing a lot on the open market operations front. They uh, they lowered the reserve requirement ratio in June, and there might be another one, but they're not doing it in a way 
that would meaningfully decline or take uh, meaningfully uh, take down uh, interbank lending rates. You typically see a two to three hundred basis point decline in three months shy bore ahead of a meaningful inflection uh, to the upside in the Chinese credit impulse. And that's very clearly what we have not observed yet. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to the daily briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. So, global central banks around the world have done gone hand over fist. They've done everything they possibly can to support asset markets, whether it's the Fed immediately cutting rates to zero, buying, you know, $500 billion of bonds, then, you know, on a, at a regular clip now it's $120 billion of bonds. ECB doing everything they possibly can. You're saying PBOC stands alone among major developed economies in not easing in really being relatively neutral. Why do you think that is? And how does it relate to your comment that you think a Lehman-like scenario of 2008 will be avoided and that the PBOC will not bail Evergrande out? Well, I think it's just more confirmation that the Communist Party of China, led obviously by President Xi, is very serious about this sort of common prosperity initiative. And, and more importantly, going back to uh, five, six years ago, this concept of higher quality growth. I mean, at any given time, you know, China's got $3.2 trillion of FX reserves. If they needed to bail out China Evergrande or all the banks that lend to China Evergrande, they could overnight. If they needed to build, you know, 10 more empty cities or 100 more empty cities, they very well could. The reality is that they do not want to. And that to me is a meaningful, that's a big deal in the context of, you know, sort of, you know, some of these very asymmetric commodity price charts. You know, I certainly believe commodities will do well. Um, in this Goldilocks period that we have projected for at least the next, uh, let's call it six to eight weeks, don't hold me to that, because uh, obviously things change. But yeah, I expect by the you know end of October, mid-November, we'll transition out of Goldilocks. But you know, so I don't want to be holding the bag on these sort of asymmetric commodity price charts in the context of everything we're talking about in China, because again, this is all a leading indicator. You know, China went into the pandemic first, they emerged from the pandemic first. You go back to last year, nobody was more bullish on China than I was last year. Um, you can fact check me on that. You know, and then they they slowed for first and everyone, uh, you know, before all the other economies. It's very similar to the 2015, 2016 cycle, and you know, the 2017 to 2019 into 2020 cycle where all the economies were slowing. And actually, I can make one final point on that. You know, you go back to the um, the uh, the dollar bond uh, collapse or the bond collapse in in, in Chinese property real estate developers. Like, what what is that signaling for? You know, U.S. and European. Uh, real estate developers. Again, I don't think you know you just because there's a vulnerability doesn't mean you need to put the trade on today. I think that's the number one thing that I see a lot of investors get wrong, particularly on and, on finance Twitter. It's just a hey, I spotted this vulnerability, and you know, so therefore I must put the trade on. Now, that's not how investing works. You know, the, the cat, trades need catalysts, and cat, the biggest the, the three catalysts that you know really move markets over time. You know, consistently the change in growth, the change in inflation, and the change in policy dynamics. Yeah, so I just want to be clear, you're. Saying that this is not at all, uh, you're not. It's not like you're not worried about it at all. You just think that for the next six to eight weeks, or uh, maybe the next few months or so, things will remain fine. Um, what will happen when, when, once those six to eight weeks uh, happen? Uh, how do you think things will start to sort of seep out, and and the, the the bull market perhaps could could unwind a little bit? What are you seeing? 
Yeah. So this is the, the in terms of uh, the, all the you know analysis that we do. It's all systematic. It's all data driven. This is probably the least systematic and data driven aspect of our analysis because you know it's anchoring on my expectations for how the fiscal policy dynamics are likely to evolve in D.C. And there's really you know obviously in any given time we can have a ton of um, confidence in that or not a much confidence in that. I think um, you'd be lying to yourself if you ever got too confident. Uh, but the reality is you know so we have the debt selling thing. Um, you know, Yellen is obviously taking down the Treasury general account balance, which is a positive from a liquidity percent perspective. You know, there's about roughly, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more or less than 200 billion to go in terms of that um, that that base. And obviously, the Fed is still buying 120 billion a month, 80 billion Treasuries, 40 billion mortgage backed securities. So, you know, as long as we're doing those two things, you're talking about incremental net liquidity to the market at a time where we don't see at least our models are you know bottom up macro regime forecasting tools don't anticipate a meaningful slowdown in either growth or inflation, which would be more negative from the perspective of the market response. And so we have this sort of, you know, in the context of everything I just said, you can kind of sort of black out all the noise on China, black out all the noise on on the size of the budget, uh, the, the next stimulus package and all that stuff, and just say, hey, no, look, investors are positioned very cautiously, and we can unpack that if you like. The, the, the economy's not doing anything that should scare you if you look at the chart uh, Jack has up. Obviously, all the dots are clustered near the origin. And oh, oh, by the way, when you're clustered near the origin, it puts the onus on policy. And what I just said about net liquidity is quite positive. But to answer your question, what do we see coming in the end of the year that is a lot different? Well, you have the confluence of two very different dynamics that we have now. You have tapering. They're going to, the Fed is going to start to capitalize the U.S. government at a slower rate. At the same time, we're likely to go from issuing very little debt to no debt in the context of the debt ceiling and, and a, a potential um, you know, uh, lack of a continuing resolution to issuing a ton of debt, like hundreds of billions of dollars at some point in you know, mid to late November and December. Like To me, I think that switch is going to be very negative for, from the perspective of risk assets because this we know. Foreign central banks aren't gobbling up our debt like they used to you know, in, the, in the early part of the or in the post in the pre-crisis era. Um, you know, sort of that's that's a problem. The Fed is obviously going to take down their uptake. And then so that means we, us investors, remember that our conversation about the schoolyard bully uh, last yes. week, we have to capitalize all that up, all that treasury supply. So um, that to me is, I think, the real big catalyst coming down the pike that I really don't hear a lot of investors talking about. Yeah, Darius, we still have this chart up. And uh, if people can see very close to the origin point where the X and the Y axis meet, you'll see all these different points that we really are circling around hovering between Goldilocks and deflation. And Darius, something that you cleared up for me on a call we had earlier this afternoon was that something can be very mildly in Goldilocks and therefore have a very mildly predictive power for a very mild equity market rally or rally in risk assets. And that could be very close to a very mild deflationary reading. So it, there are yep. levels to these things and it's not just like, oh, this is Goldilocks, so things are gonna do well. This is deflation and things are gonna do well or do poorly, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. So like uh, and to put some numbers on what you just said. Yeah. So when you're when you're when you're only slowing modestly from the perspective of growth, from the perspective of the economy, the Y axis and you're in deflation, you're in that bottom left box. It's actually historically been quite positive. If you look at 25 years of monthly returns you know, for something like the S&P 500, the media or the annualized expected return there is 11 percent plus 11 percent. However, when you go to the bottom left, you know, when you're when growth slowing, you know, quite uh, precipitously, um, that's when the annualized expected return goes from you know, modest slowdown at plus 11% annualized to minus 25% annualized. Like that's a big difference. So the speed of the change really matters, which is why that we you know present the information this way because uh, you can obviously e easily visualize it. Yeah, uh, Darius. We before we move on to commodities, 
there are like four questions about Evergrande's impact on foreign markets. So Jeff Defoe wants to know what's the chance of this bleeding over to the general U.S. market. Lisa wants to know how likely is the spread of an Evergrande default to bonds held outside China. And uh, Show Me the Money uh, wants to know, in other words, is this a Lehman moment for global markets? Uh, no, it's not. Um, you know, <laughs> actually, I don't want to say no, it's not without any range of probable outcomes. But I think the modal outcome of whatever that distribution is, is very much on the side of the, the right side of the distribution. Um, and the reason I say that is because China, again, has $3.2 trillion of FX reserves that they can just dump at this problem if it became a real problem. Right. Like that's a lot of money. Like we need to acknowledge that. Now, that might mean they need to sell some you know, Treasury bills or something to uh, capitalize that that outcome. But they certainly can get that done if they needed to. And, the, you know, the reality is, is, again, the Chinese banks aren't levered. And more importantly, they're not capitalizing themselves with toxic assets like what we saw in the in the in the, in the GFC. And I think this is another investor to stake investors make a decent amount, which is they're always like looking in the rearview mirror at the previous crisis, you know, like, oh, it's ever granted debt default. This reminds me of Lehman or this reminds me of Bear Stearns. And no, the next crisis will be something completely different, just like this most recent one was, was it was a pandemic. It won't be a pandemic. It'll be something else. And that's that's kind of why you always have you have to build systematic, repeatable processes that are data driven, that allow you to dial up or dial down your risk at you know important intervals in and around things changing, because it's always going to change. Darius, when you went like this, is be honest, is the reason you did that just because you're so proud of your background, which looks so cool? Yeah, no, I finally got uh, I finally got my uh, whatever that thing is called. Oh, Chris, I learned this. <laughs> so the, I grew up very poor, so you know, I'm learning all these words as I, as I you know, advance in my adult life. Uh, that's called a credenza. Um, I got that at Restoration Wayfair, where you guys like to uh, shop shop at the uh, high end places. Restoration Wayfair. <laughs> <laughs> credenza, I, yeah, it's, it's basically like a table. Uh, I guess a table with cabinets. <laughs> that's, that's my definition of a credenza, the table with cabinets. Anyway. Checks out. Uh, Darius, let's move on to commodities. Earlier, you said that the next six to eight weeks, you expect to be bullish for commodities because of these liquidity uh, dynamics. What are you seeing when you when you zoom in a little bit, whether it's at aluminum or uranium or oil? Um, what, what are you seeing in those markets? Yeah, so the number one thing I'm seeing in commodities is the fact that the leadership is occurring in places where there's clear supply demand imbalances, like uranium, like nat gas, like base metals, aluminum, uh, uh, iron ore, stuff like that. Um, you, you're seeing a very, uh, very much of a laggard shift with respect to ag commodities. I think the supply demand imbalances kind of came and went uh, there with respect to hurricane season. And actually, the DBA as a proxy for ag is, uh, is actually down 3% month on month, whereas the DBB, which is the base metals, is actually up 4%. So you're seeing some dispersion in commodities. You're actually seeing commodities actually outperform um, all the other major asset classes. If you look at the DBC, um, the, and these are month on month returns through 3.30 p.m. today. DBC is up 3.9%. TLT is uh, second at up 1.3%. Uh, Bitcoin and gold are tied for third at up 0.8%. SPY is up only 0.5%. And dollars uh, kind of, you know, flat to down. What does all that sound like? It kind of sounds like Goldilocks, right? <laughs> was this today, Darius? No, yeah, these are month-on-month returns. So oh, month-on-month month returns, okay. Okay, thanks for that. Yeah, I should say, Darius, uh, I think WTI uh, crude oil is up two bucks today. Uh, the energy, U.S. energy sector XLE was was up a lot. I think EO, EOG. If you looked at the stocks that were most up in the S and P 500, it was like a you know a, a who's who of all these. It was like EOG, Fang, Exxon Mobil. 
so definitely a huge, you know, that was definitely the, the, the bull uh, market ripout today. Um, mm -hmm. Darius, tell us about how you not only use the macro cycle to predict commodity prices, but use commodity prices to predict the, the, the macro cycle as well. Yeah, so that, that's a loaded question. So at 42 Macro, we sort of we're constantly bean counting and measuring mapping two aspects that I think are really important for investors. One, what is the top down market regime? We're always now casting what's the general behavior of asset markets on a trending basis. And right now that general behavior has been Goldilocks and it's been generally Goldilocks since the beginning of June. Um, and then we're also trying to forecast, measure, map and forecast the bottom up macro regime cycle. So top down market regime, bottom up macro regime. And what I mean by the bottom of macro regime is exactly what was, what's depicted in the uh, in these grid charts. You know, what regime is the economy actually going to be at in various intervals in the future? Because that should, at the bare minimum, instruct our expectations for how the market regime, the market behavior is likely to likely to change. To me, the the, the you know the the sequence, the change in the market regime is how you make or or lose a lot of money as an investor. So that's why. You know, we try to keep our investors, uh, people who subscribe to 42 Macro, very aware of these changing dynamics. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Welcome back to The Daily Briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. Yeah, uh, I, I know a lot of people look at something like the copper to gold ratio, where if that's high, a lot of people want to buy copper because economic activity is robust. If it's low, it's because a lot of people want the safety of gold. Um, Darius, there's also the lumber to gold ratio, which is something that... Um, our friend Michael Gayad has his eye on. Darius, I'm pleased to say that you actually did your first Real Vision interview in the host seat uh, where you talked to Michael about his process. Here, we're going to play a clip about him explaining why the lumber to gold ratio is important. Let's take a look and then I want, I want to get your thoughts on it. Why would lumber to gold have anything to do with the stock market? It becomes very clear when you think about the link to housing. Right. So we know that Lumber is a leading indicator of the economy. Uh, rather, housing is a leading indicator of the economy. Uh, most people's wealth is in their homes. The average home has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. So it stands to reason that if housing is a leading indicator, well, then lumber, by extension, because of the long tail construction, must be a leading indicator as well. So as lumber performs, there's all kinds of implications on what it suggests for growth, inflation, credit creation, so on and so forth. Now, gold, on the other hand, is more of a safe haven commodity historically meaning that when you have these high-risk periods in the stock market, these tails wagging, gold for a moment in time tends to do fairly well. So if you compare lumber to gold, it actually tells you a lot about risk. Now, one of the, the key data points in that paper is if over the last rolling 13 weeks, which is the look-back period for the lumber-to-gold relationship in that research, if lumber is outperforming gold over the last 13 weeks, the S&P 500's volatility on average is around 12.5%. If gold is outperforming lumber over the last 13 weeks, the go-forward volatility on the S&P rises quite a bit to an average of 17%. So, Darius, uh, what do you make of Michael's uh, thinking that the lumber-to-gold ratio can be a predictive outcome for the economy and asset prices, not only giving you an extra return, 
but also a significant protection against market volatility. I know, uh, you know, you look at so many different indicators. Just tell us about that sort of process. Yeah, so I think what, what so for starters, let me say that was a phenomenal interview. If you want to learn stuff about how to do buy side level risk management, I definitely think you should check that out next week. Um, you know, it's not a, it, it obviously we had some actionable thoughts in there, but I really do think that's a masterclass at how to actually use cyclical information to orient your risk management, which I think a lot of investors, um, you know, could, we could all get better at, including myself. But going back to the lumber to gold ratio, what I think uh, Michael is actually sort of empirically observing in his process is the fact that the rate of change of growth in particular is one of the principal components of asset class returns. And so he highlighted that, look, okay, when the lumber to gold ratio is positive on a, on a, on a performance basis, on a relative performance basis, you know, you typically have uh, uh, S&P 500 volatility in the kind of 12% range. And when that's negative, i.e. it's implying that growth is slowing because gold tends to be a deflate or a risk off asset, whereas lumber tends to be a risk on asset. You have S&P 500 volatility in the sort of 12 to 18% range. Ironically, or not ironically, that's exactly what our findings suggest as well. So if you go back to the grid chart, when you're above the horizontal axis, as the, you know, what it means, you know, growth's accelerating, the, the mean uh, volatility for the S&P 500 is actually 12.5%. And when you're below the horizontal axis, i.e. growth is decelerating, the mean volatility for the S&P 500 is 17.5%. This is our empirical finding uh, as well. So two to two separate processes, but one thing, the, both, the number one thing they have in common is they're measuring and mapping cycles and, you know, cycles that are um, really important with respect to asset markets. Yeah, it's interesting how two people's frameworks, they can appear slightly different, but they have the base assumption that what's happening in the real economy is, is going to ask, impact asset markets and the vice versa. Interestingly, what I found, uh, this is the lumber to gold ratio, the 13-week rate of change, which I believe is what Michael uses. It's at, its, it's, it's at something like a 20-year low. I didn't even look back um, further. So that that's a little ominous. Uh, let's put that chart down. Darius, uh, I, I want to ask you, you know, we were going to talk about inflation, but it just popped in my head. You know, I consume a little bit of financial media. I watch, you know, some of the other networks. I'm seeing bull market uh, equity investors beg for a pullback. I'm seeing a lot of that because over the almost over the past 10 months, we haven't even had a 5% correction, which is close to unprecedented, very rare. And then likewise, I saw in the Bloomberg editorial page, not an op-ed, but from the editorial board, uh, they were saying, hey, the Federal Reserve, you should taper. So isn't there kind of, it's kind of like things are so good right now that even investors are like, it needs to stop. It's like, it's too good. What do you, does that, to what degree, I know, I know you're a very quantitative preposterous. <laughs> I'm making it, nobody, that sounds like people who aren't making money in the stock market. Like quite frankly, you know, not to be too, too harsh to that community of investors. But again, this is every time, I mean, been coming on this program for months and saying the same thing. Look, people are caught at the bare minimum. They're cautiously positioned. And in and around these OPEX catalysts that we've seen since June, July, and August, and now, they get very defensively positioned. The mean implied volatility premium, which is a relationship between uh, 30-day at-the-money put implied vol in terms of how we calculate it, relative to the regime of local uh, realized volatility, 10-day, 20-day, 30-day realized volatility, is 58%. Like, they're paying 58% more for puts than what's just happened in the recent past. Like that, like to me, you've seen this this dynamic occur all summer, whereas people just are, are looking around, they see Fed taper, they see China slowing, you know, they think the fiscal catalyst, the fiscal policy thing is going to be a mess, you know, over the next you know month or two. And they're just so bearish, at least, you know, cautiously positioning 
with respect to their their the outright positioning, with respect to their hedging activity, their delta hedging activity, and ultimately with respect to their asset allocation in terms of the sectors and style factors that they've consistently flowed assets into since inflation peaked back in early June. Mm. Darius, uh, as we reach a close, two uh, questions for you. Number one, can you give us your quick take on yesterday's inflation print, which came in 5.3% uh, exactly at uh, what was expected. But I think if you remove uh, food and energy, it was, at, it was lower than expected. So some people are saying inflation has proved to be transitory. Your thoughts on that? And then uh, a viewer wants to know what you think on J of Japan. Yeah, oh, uh, so I'll start with inflation. So it, 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 it was incrementally confirming of our long-tail transitory view. We've always been in the transitory camp. Um, you know, part of the reason for us being in the transitory camp is because, you know, we were, you know, <laughs> I guess not, not, not dumb enough to not realize, yeah, that two negatives there, not dumb enough to not realize that this, the fiscal impulse, the record fiscal impulse we saw in the first half of the year was transitory. Reopening it, the impulse there associated with that was transitory. And obviously the deflationary base effects of the spring of last year are also transitory. Therefore, the 5% headline CPI, the 4% core CPI, and the 3% plus uh, core PCE data points were likely to be transitory. That doesn't mean they're coming straight down in, in any time soon. They're likely to remain sticky if for other you know, reasons like shelter CPI is still accelerating. But the reality is it's, it's transitory, and that's what we saw with some of the data. You know, A couple of things to call out in particular, you know, core goods CPI, which is where all the supply chain disruptions are occurring, actually slowed 80 basis points to 7.7% year over year. That's a three-month low. But that 80 basis point deceleration was the slow, or was the sharpest deceleration we've seen since June of 1983. I wasn't even born uh, in 1983, so that's a long time ago. Um, the annualized rate of core CPI has been cut by 90% since April. Now it's only at 1.2%. So you know, I think that was a big question for a lot of investors, particularly you know, you go back to that um, that April CPI report, which was released on May 12th. That was kind of like the bell ringer. That's when it shot up above 4%. Remember, and that's when everyone started going. Oh my God, inflation. And we've been doing, oh my God, inflation ever since. But the reality is ever since that day, bonds are outperforming stocks, commodities, and crypto on a total return basis since then. So, oh my God, inflation missed the point about the inflation cycle peaking and rolling right when our model suggest suggested they would. Final question about Japan. Um, yeah, Vladis says, how does Darius feel about Japan? Uh, let's, let's take it the, the equity market. Yeah, so we'll start with the equity market on uh, Japan a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the fact, fact check me on that. Um, I want to say a couple of weeks ago broke out to uh, bullish from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. It had been neutral for a while. So whatever, it, you know, the dynamics that were causing Japan to, to slow or, or to, to, to contract in the equity market terms actually got resolved to the upside. And so to me, I think that might be a stealth leading indicator alongside the, the outperformance of commodities in the last month as, OK, the world is actually starting to move past Delta. Right, like it's all been, it's been Delta since you know the beginning of August, you know, middle of July, and now I think the world is starting to send signals that Delta's increasingly in the rearview mirror. And then another thing that happened last week is the ten-year uh, Japanese government bond yield, which is one of the uh, uh, forty-two macro market indicators featured in our global macro risk matrix, which is the tool we use to now cast the market regime. That went to uh, neutral from bearish, and so this follows the ten-year gilt yield and the ten-year uh, tips break even. From breaking from uh, breaking out from bearish to neutral from the perspective of that BAM signal. So to me, I think you're starting to kind of you know add up things that are you know moving at the margin that say, hey, maybe the world's moving past Delta. And if that's the case, I think it'll likely be driven by you know a bounce in the September data, could potentially see a bounce in the October data if September 
you know, if, particularly in the U.S., if Delta has not moved quickly enough. Um, but again, I think that all sort of favors Goldilocks, at least over the next couple of months. And more importantly, I think that favors um, more broadening participation in the equity market. You know, I don't think it's uh, appropriate to run out and, and lever up long, you know, single stocks at this point in the juncture, because, again, we know that we're going to have to sell that stuff, you know, within the next couple of months in terms of the net liquidity dynamics being on shifting, being unfavorable. And ultimately, you don't necessarily want to be wearing a lot of liquidity risk at that juncture. But for those of you who are, you know, retail investors, RA investors that aren't moving a ton of capital, I certainly think there are opportunities there as well. Darius, it's always great to have you on the daily briefing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everyone for watching as well. We've got some great interviews lined up, excuse me, uh, on Real Vision. In addition to Darius's interview with Michael Guide, which I believe airs next Tuesday, tomorrow, Rao will be speaking to uh, a venture capitalist. It's an exponential age piece on space travel. I know Rao is extremely excited about it. And then on Friday, Rao is speaking to legendary macro insider James Aitken. Uh, I believe they talk about everything, uh, everything macro, it's inflation. So I definitely have my eyes peeled on, on that one. Uh, Darius, thank you again for coming. It's, it's always a pleasure. Uh, and thank you, thank you everyone for watching. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks, Jack. Catch you guys here next time. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.